Hello. It's been um, a couple of months since I last spoke here for various reasons. There's been a lot of Ed up the front. Um, and, uh, well, if you are um, with 59% of American evangelicals who think it's unbiblical for me to be doing this at all, um, bummer. <laughs> uh, Sorry if this is a surprise to you. Um, it is what we believe in here. Um, I guess it'd be a little bit awkward to leave right now, but maybe you could pretend you're going for a drink in a minute or so. Um, the absence of women's voices and women at the front of stage, um, on, on the stages of churches um, is something that I think throughout the history of time has been a really big problem. And it is something that we're really passionate about redressing um, here at Bread. Not for a second that we don't believe in men and we don't want men to thrive, you understand. Um, but this has always been about uh, modelling the, the unity in diversity um, that Jesus' kingdom is supposed to be known for. Good. Um, so, what's the deal with the parables is, I imagine, what you woke up thinking about this morning, which is a wonderful coincidence because it's what I'm going to explain to you now. Um, they've been misunderstood as a genre for the vast majority of Christian history. Not chiefly because of scholarly infighting or source, over source verification and authorship, like is the case with some other parts of the Bible. The misunderstandings surrounding the parables you see are down to a different problem. Um, because the question, what did these stories mean to the original listeners, wasn't really asked or answered until the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the middle of the last century. So that's a lot of time. A lot of Christian history, the odd millennia or two, for them to be misinterpreted. And misinterpreted they were because they were read to be simple allegories. So the idea that Jesus um, created 50 or so of these stories with key characters playing key parts to illustrate his teaching. Like Aesop's fable, the boy who cried wolf, or um, the hare of the tortoise. One of those. Fables with simple messages. Simple warnings. And this isn't to say that the parables don't have any allegorical meaning, but reducing them to allegories has meant that layers and layers of meaning has been lost. What we've been missing is a fundamental understanding on the culture of Jewish teaching. And this, among other things, is what the Dead Sea Scrolls helped to uncover. First century Jewish teaching, in its nature, was not about giving a straightforward answer to a question. The point of much of rabbinic teaching was to challenge, to open up understanding, not to close it down. Jesus was, a speak, was speaking in a language that all Jews could understand, but he was also changing many things about the rules of the game while he did it. Because the parables are actually a mind-bending genre. They're not simple stories and sayings that contain information about Jesus' kingdom, not just that. They are actually part of the means by which he brought it about. He wasn't just giving his listeners something to think about. He was inviting them into the new world that was being created at the same time. The parable that we're going to look at today, the Good Samaritan, is a classic example of this missing the point. Because it's as an emblem, the Good Samaritan is universally known. It's breached the walls of Christendom, hasn't it? Um, I googled it last night for you. Um, have a look. The two current news stories are both about the kindness of a stranger, which is a beautiful notion, coming to the rescue of someone you don't even know. And it's lovely that that's associated with Jesus, isn't it? It's just that it wasn't at all the point he was making. 
It's in Luke chapter 10, which is um, known as the traveling narrative. And it covers the last six months of Jesus' life where he's going around and he's gathering more and more disciples and he's teaching more and more people about what life is like in his kingdom before he heads to Jerusalem for the last time. So uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, for a scholar to ask this question, it's very normal. It's his job to interpret um, the law for his whole community. So he'd ask a rabbi this exact question every single chance he got. He does know the answer, as we're going to see in a sec. But wrestling with this question is part of the very Jewish understanding that on the day of judgment, when you die, all your good deeds will be weighed against all your bad bad deeds. And therefore, life is this great moral balancing act to ensure that the scales are tipped in the right direction. It's a normal question, but Luke is also telling us that this guy is testing Jesus. He's trying to prove that this miracle-working teacher from Galilee doesn't hold the law in high regard. So what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, Jesus replies. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. He's giving the answer that everyone would have known. It's a two-precept summary from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, known as the Great Commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this, and you will live. There you go. Shove that on your eternal scales and weigh it, my friend. We agree that the law is vital, but I think we can also agree that no one is able to fulfill it. No one can perform perfect heart, soul, strength, and mind love for God and concern yourself with the affairs of your neighbor every bit as carefully as you concern yourself with yours. Not all the time, can you? And the correct response from the lawyer for any of us is no, I can't. Can you help me? That is all Jesus wants from any of us. It's a very poignant moment that's really easy to miss. But verse 29 says, uh, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? He doesn't like Jesus' answer. He isn't going to leave it like this. So he's going back to the fine print, to the clauses, to the yes, but who is my neighbor? Like, how much do I have to tithe? How often do I have to help? How much is enough? Define it. Draw me the lines, because I'd like to know what boxes I've got to tick. The parable of the Good Samaritan is the answer to the question, what is the basic righteousness that God requires from every human being? So let's do it then. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Be like the good Samaritan. But not the good Samaritan who's just a kind-eyed stranger who helps when he doesn't have to. The driver who picks up the broken down doctor so he can perform life-saving surgery or um, the man who returns money to the grieving widow to go back to those two news stories from last night. The good Samaritan is not the nice lady in Target who saw my lost daughter and returned her to customer services so that I could find her. The thing is, my daughter wasn't actually lost. My five-year-old daughter is obsessed with hiding from me, and I don't know why. It's her favourite thing, and she forgets each time that actually it's quite scary, and it really upsets us both. (laughs) She's a twisted sense of humour. We are sure of it. Uh, one time last summer, they had the whole of Jefferson Target, Jefferson Road Target, on shutdown because we couldn't find her for that long. And what she does is, she'll be with me one second, and yeah, yeah, I'm right here. And then she's gone, like an invisible ninja from Narnia, and she's run 16 and a half aisles, and she's hiding in some long coats, which she thinks is funny. And I don't know why. Anyway, last time it happened, it was about two weeks ago, and a nice lady who presumably has experienced the terror of losing a child... Uh, saw her do it and grabbed her and took her to customer services before it got serious. I'm pretty sure there's a picture of me in the Jefferson (laughs) Target staff room. Be advised. (laughs) Sweaty English lady who runs around shrieking, Margot's back again. (laughs) Anyway. um, The Good Samaritan is not anything to do with the kindness of a stranger. The Good Samaritan meant something else entirely to Jesus' listeners. Imagine you're lying on a 17-mile well-known, well-known road known for its danger, for its peril, known to be full of thieves and robbers and murderers. And you've been attacked and you're stripped and you're dying. And the very people you expect to help you, the very people charged with care and compassion, hurry straight past. The public health officials, the distributors of arms to the poor, two of them cross the street and pass by. Jesus has very deliberately set up the first two players, and it's easy for us to miss. The priest and the Levite um, lead his listeners very directly to expect a third player, the Israelite. It's like the priest, rabbi, and minister walking into a bar to you. To us, it's the Englishman, Scotsman, and Irishman, but I don't think that translates to either. Also, pretty sure Brexit's changed that for the Englishman forever. We're now the butt of everyone's jokes. I'm actually Scottish. If a priest had walked by and a Levite had walked by, the crowd is fully expecting that the Israelite is going to be the protagonist in whatever point Jesus is about to make. So when they hear Samaritan, what do you mean Samaritan? Because Samaritans weren't just the underdog, the oppressed minority. Samaritan is worse than expected. It's offensive. It's outlandish. It's making a hero out of your enemy an ancient enemy who has wronged you, who raped Jacob's daughter, who murdered your people and built an idol to your God's enemy. This is your ancient foe. 
And I struggled quite hard to think of a contemporary comparison to this, partly because we're so culturally ingrained to know that this level of ethnic-based enemy is wrong. It's racism, it's bigotry, it's sectarianism, and it's not okay. So it's, I think it is a bit difficult for us to relate to this one. I did my undergraduate degree in Belfast in the late 90s, and I don't mean to assume that you don't know about the um, issues there, but just in case. Um, about 100 years ago, most of Ireland was returned to um, free. It was freed from British rule, but there were a lot of um, Protestants of British descent in Northern Ireland, so they partitioned it, but also in Northern Ireland were a lot of Catholics who saw themselves as Irish. So kind of a century of a lot of fighting has happened as a result. And I arrived there in 1998, which was the year that the Good Friday Agreement was signed and supposedly an end to the Troubles. But as you can imagine, um, these things don't just go away and a big legacy of it carried on. And I arrived at university and I was put on a corridor and um, all of my friends were Catholic. And for some reason I was excused from being classified as a Protestant because I wasn't a Northern Irish Protestant and also I wasn't a Christian and I made sure everybody knew that. Um, but I saw it. I saw the effect of what happens within, if within one generation you have stories of violence, police violence, of being legally discriminated against in employment. Most people had stories of, from their parents' generation where they, were, they wouldn't be able to get a job just because they were Catholic. And it doesn't go away. And I saw, I saw actually big outbreaks of violence when we were drinking because of something someone would say. It was so charged and ready to go at any point. I wonder if here we're in a political climate that is pushing us further towards sort of that direction on the two sides, the mistrust, the outrage, the moral superiority. Maybe your Samaritan is a gun-toting tea party activist or a pussy-hat-wearing feminist who's fighting for her rights over her body. Let's do our best to relate. Maybe when I say enemy, someone else pops into your head, someone who's wronged you or cheated you or hurt you. But let's try, because the point of Jesus' story is that your enemy isn't just going to stop, isn't just going to bind your wounds or save your life, He's also going to anoint you with oil, load you onto his mule, take you to the inn, pay your bill. He's going to give up his plans, he's going to give up his money, the equivalent of three and a half weeks' stay, and more if it's needed, to make sure you've got everything you need in order to recover. Full-bodied, multi-dimensional, need-meeting, friendship, advocacy, medical treatment, transportation, financially generous compassion. The lawyer asked Jesus to define who his neighbour is, hoping that Jesus will limit the scope of who he needs to show care for, because he's living within the old rules of Israel's kingdom. Interestingly, if Jesus had told the story in reverse, if the Samaritan had been lying on the floor and, the, and a Jew had been passing by, uh, there would have been no legal or moral obligation for him to care for him. A good Jewish man or woman could walk, merrily walk past an injured Samaritan and be in no breach of the law about loving his neighbor because a Samaritan was not his neighbor. So the question, who is my neighbor, is answered with, I came to change things. There is no such thing anymore. There is no neighbor or non-neighbor. He came to show us a new way to reach across the aisle, to break down the walls, 
to say you first, not me. And it doesn't stop at national or religious borders. It does not huddle with members of its own tribe or build a wall to protect itself. It does not have favorites. Neighbors are no longer determined by race, creed, or gender in Jesus' kingdom. And it's confronting, isn't it? The New Testament here and elsewhere is not in any way ambiguous about what we're called to do as Jesus' followers. We are explicitly commanded to shelter the shelterless, feed the hungry, help the sick, visit the imprisoned. And not just of our own kind either. Absolutely not just the Christians. Everywhere. All people fearfully and wonderfully made in his sight. Our works is how we're to be known, is what we're told. Compassion, an inevitable sign of our faith. It's evidence. It's inescapable truth woven throughout the pages of the New Testament. We, God's people, are called to these things. And this is where we land back to the here and now. This city is crying out. Homelessness has surged by 75% in the last six years, but you do not need me to tell you that because it is everywhere we look. You might not know how prevalent sex trafficking is in this town. Increasing numbers of cases every day of the week. Increasing numbers of children, the vast majority of whom have been taken from care, who are coerced into sex slavery. The care system, underfunded, underserved, in desperate need of advocacy and support of volunteers like you and me. The mental health crisis, the suicide crisis, so much crisis, so much need. Part of the reason that we moved Brad to Los Feliz is because we were so passionate about the scope that there is here for us to become part of this community. And while we have to be realistic about our current size and capacity, we do have big dreams for how we want to engage with this stuff, both in this local area, to be, speak very locally. Um, we want to support this school. They are very under-resourced, mainly because the families who go to this school are um, from low socioeconomic backgrounds. As well as the wider area, down the road, there's an organisation called Covenant House who provide emergency shelter for young people, many of whom have already been trafficked. We'd also um, very much like to increase our level of support at Union Rescue Mission on Skid Row. They are the full Monty of shelter. They serve 3,000 meals a day and provide overnight shelter, but they also provide free medical treatment, free dental care, free legal advice, free debt advice, pastoral care, counselling. They are fully committed to helping get people off the street and back into work and housing. We helped serve lunch on a Saturday there regularly last year. We also helped instigate a training program to homeless parents on the family's floor over last summer. And actually that's something I would very much like to prioritize um, and do more of this year in terms of how far my hope reaches for a better future. For me, it all starts with infant attachment. So early intervention is really my jam. Our take is absolutely that we should be partnering with and supporting organisations who already know the lay of the land in this city. But please pray about this with us. Please come to the lunch um, with Cara and me in a couple of weeks. Let's see. 
let's ask God to show us clearly um, where he wants us to start as a community to get stuck in. Our job is to follow the leading of the Spirit in this arena as much as any other. But I know that the sheer mention of these tasks, the unavoidability of these tasks as Christians to provide shelter, to help those in need, to show compassion, to serve, to give, I think it makes more than a few of us feel a great heavy burden. The weight of, but I don't have enough time and I don't have enough to give anything away and I don't like how it makes me feel and I can't really look at it because it's so overwhelming and I don't want to be reminded about how Jesus told me that I'm obligated to do this. And this is where I can help you. The Samaritan had no obligation. Not one listener who, who listened to it that day would have heard it that way. The Samaritan was filled with compassion. From the Greek word splagma, meaning from your gut, to be moved from your deepest soul. It's used most often in the New Testament to describe Jesus' emotional state with his love for us. And that's the point. Splagma is compassion that comes from Jesus. It's not ours to manufacture. It's what happens to us when we receive from him. And it it is something else, something completely other to all human effort, all box ticking, all commandment fulfilling all righteous, charitable work, no matter how great it is, this is something else. A group of us um, marched in the Women's March yesterday, and it felt different to previous years. The first year, two years ago, it was all new, I think, for our generation to experience this kind of level of togetherness. I had certainly never, I've marched quite a lot, and I'd never experienced anything like the first women's march. 75, uh, no, 750,000 people on the streets of downtown LA and across the country. But this year it was different, and it was still great. It was a lot smaller. But it's been undeniably tainted by um, some directly anti-Semitic statements by some people that the leaders of the march were associated with, and they're bizarre refusal to refuse it. There was a real sense of division. Um, and actually, it's not, it's not the first instance of division in the movement in the last two years. Um, the phrase, the future is female, is deeply offensive to the intersectional goals of people um, who are keen to reduce heteronormative language in the movement. But to others, the future is non-binary was never the point. And all this has shown me how impossible it is for us in human terms to unite around even a simple cause like the belief that women should be free and equal because of our pain. Because our pain, it causes division. Not for one moment that I'm saying we should quit. In Colossians 1, it says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. Fullness of God, 
that enabled all his power. All this wisdom and grace and splagma. The, from the depths of his soul, compassion. Jesus was full, and we are not. We are born with leaks. And there's no solution to these leaks other than him. Other than letting the Spirit fill us over and over and over. So how much is this flowing through you right now? Because if you've heard any of this as hard as an, an, as an obligation, well, welcome to the club. But it's a sure sign that you need more compassion, mercy and love and forgiveness. Because all this is true of forgiveness too. The forgiveness that it would take to even think about having compassion for your enemy. The enemy that you might have had in your mind earlier. I am not speaking in vapid platitudes here. I've met Rwandan widows whose families, husbands and children were brutally murdered in front of them, who had experienced something so enormous, something so incredible, and they were full to such an extent that they were able to find the people that did it, to track them down in prisons after they were brought to justice and adopt them and visit them and bring them food and hold them in their arms. There is absolutely no way that that is something we are humanly capable of doing. I'm convinced of it. And that's it's sort of what Hannah's picture of the of trying to sew back the orange peel really spoke to me about. There's no way we can do this stuff out of strong determination. The power that this stuff requires only comes from one place. Forgiveness is powerful. There's power in receiving it and there's power in releasing it. But we do not do it because we are obligated to. We don't do any of this because we're obligated to. If you're sitting there gripped by um, wounds that were inflicted by somebody else, I don't for a second belittle them. But letting go of the hurt, giving it to Jesus is a choice. The same as anything else. It's a choice to say, I can't do this. I need help. But let him give you the experience of it. Let him fill you with his spirit, fill you with his power, down to the depths of your being. The places where we hold these things. Let him do it over and over and over and over and over again. There's a supernatural element to everything that we're called to do. None of this was supposed to be an obligation. None of it is on us. None of it is our idea. The only way compassion and forgiveness and generosity and love, love being the absence of fear, the absence of fear that we'd be mistreated or taken for granted if we let any of this stuff go. The only way this stuff pours out of us is when it's poured into us. Let the Spirit pour his compassion into you. Let him show you how he feels about this city, 
but first let him show you how he feels about you. Just start there. Let him show you how much he loves you, how much he rages against the unjust things that have been done to you, how tender his heart is for the way that you hurt and the ways that you've screwed up. Receive the power of his forgiveness, his grace, his compassion for you. Because this is the only way we have it to give back. I think that the prophetic words that we heard this morning when woven together um, showed quite clearly that this is what God wants to do for some of us today. And so what we're going to do now is ask the band to come up. You can stand and sing or you can stand and just ask for this. Just say the simple prayer. I can't do this. Please help me. And we'll ask his spirit to come. And then we'll pray for people. But please stand.